1: Today on the show, prolific author Nick Redfern returns to talk all about his latest book, The Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy, A Close Encounter Exposed as a Top-Secret Government Experiment.
0: People do want to hear about UFOs, and they don't want to hear about Nick talking about holograms. You know, I'll be brutally honest, but I know people don't want the truth to be what it is in my book. They want it to be extraterrestrial, but I mean, I can only present it as it is. But that's one of the most brilliant things about it, you know. The reason why these programs work is because so many people do want that to be the answer. They want the alien angles. They don't want to know that um, Rendlesham was a secret military experiment. And that's what you're up against. That's ufology.
1: This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. Nick, thanks for joining me once again on Somewhere in the Skies.
0: Hey Ryan, well, uh, thanks for having me
1: on again. Absolutely, I think the last time we spoke was face to face, actually, in Michigan for the UFO con. So I'm excited to catch up, man.
0: Yeah, that's
1: exactly when it was, yep. Yep, yep. And you had a controversial book come out around that time, as you do today. So we're going to be talking today about the Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy, a close encounter exposed as a top-secret government experiment. That subtitle, I think, is going to be the the contention today uh, with many people in the UFO field. But um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this one, man.
0: No, well, thanks. I mean, it's one of these things that people may not know. The book's called The Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy, and it takes sort of a different approach to the UFO angle, but arguably you could say it's more controversial in some ways than it could be if aliens really did land. And um, this being ufology, you know, some people think that I'm right on target. Other people want to sort of, um, you know, throw me on a bonfire and just leave me there
1: (laughs) right yeah yeah that's what you (laughs) seem to uh, be good at
0: (laughs) so um, so there's been a lot of good debates and arguments but uh, you know I always tell people I've got thick skin and you know for an argument bring it on you know that's that's what it's Debating's for you know, to try and get to the heart of what the truth is um, of this particular case and um, and see where it leads us, you know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is definitely one of those cases where I think there is a wide open field of alternative theories, because just like most UFO cases, we don't have a solid definitive answer. On what happened and we are kind of left with you know what the majority think Roswell was aliens Randolph Schum was aliens but when you start to really look at these things and look at it with a fresh perspective um I think these theories you're bringing forward uh have a lot more truth to them than I think a lot of people are willing to accept as uh true believers of a et kind i would say but um before we even get to that nick um you're probably sick of answering this question but for some of my listeners who may not be too familiar with the Rendlesham case could you maybe give us kind of the you know the 101 rundown of what Rendlesham is and uh what the original event was all about
0: well it began um like part of december 1980 quite literally over the uh the christmas period and rendersham forest is a large area of forest um in the um county of suffolk in england and it's near the if you look it up on the on the map it's um it's close to the east coast and um it's a very intriguing location because all around that area you've got or you used to have at the height of the Cold War uh, a number of um, British Royal Air Force bases which actually had uh, leased out um, to to the United States. And so although the bases that were the two bases involved in the incident, Royal Air Force Bentwaters and Royal Air Force Woodbridge, although the events occurred on uk soil the bases themselves were actually um staffed by us personnel largely not completely but largely so we have this situation where you've got military and um, on both sides the uk and the us in varying ways Being involved. And um, the story is that um, around 26, 27 December 1980, and the numbers are actually um, sort of a little bit vague because over the years people have come forward to say well you know if something else happened on the third night and on the fourth night and there are stories about um and just over the suffolk uh, border um there's another county there called norfolk and there were rumors of another experiment going on there as well on one of the same nights so we don't admittedly after 40 years you know there are some things we don't know about it apart from the fact that the case was almost unique because if you think about it, most UFO events, you know, somebody sees something and they take a picture or they just see it and, you know, tell somebody. This is really different because it wasn't here one second and gone the the next second like so many ufo cases this went on for three or four nights and so that's one of the reasons why it's really stuck in people's minds and um and the fact that you know there were um, a couple of dozen if not more military personnel out in the woods collectively on the on the various nights and so it's become it's become known as like the British Roswell, not because anything crashed, but because of the the sheer visibility of the case and also the fact that, you know, it involves so many military people. So um, that's essentially the story and what the, uh, the people saw, the guys saw, was sort of lights in the sky beams of light, kind of like a red pencil, laser light, things like this. And um, and reports of some of the the, uh, the witnesses seeing what looked like a, a craft. And there was this sort of strange mist as well in the woods. So everything about it was sort of really weird and, and atmospheric.
1: Right, super trippy almost. And I mean, that yeah. kind of comes with the territory of... Rendlesham forest so before we even dive into some of these theories on what could have landed there if anything landed there i know you've done a lot of research into Rendlesham forest itself with a lot of the the folklore and history to this place and i was wondering would you mind touching on kind of the the stranger aspects of this forest before we even dive into the event
0: yeah sure well this this to this, one of them is sort of the the conspiracy angle, and by that I mean that a lot of people who've heard of the case and have heard of Rendlesham Forest, they may not know of the sort of history of secret projects of varying ways um, that have actually occurred in and around the area. For example, in the early 1930s, the British government secretly created a a new program to develop radar, and it was called the Tizard Committee. And this was when uh, radar was really in its infancy. And this occurred, um, as I said, it was set up in the 1930s and continued through the Second World War. Not too far from Rendlesham Forest, there's a little village called Shingle Street. And there have been rumours for years, in fact decades, that a contingent of, of German troops tried to secretly invade the UK from the East Coast. And they were all killed by some... Some sort of technology that literally set them all on fire as they started to get onto the beach. And there was in the 1960s, there was a a top secret radar. Uh, operation called Cobra Mist, which also operated out of there as well. And also Marconi had a presence in the same area. Now, to put this into sort of the stark reality of it all, the Tizard Committee, Cobra Mist, Shingle Street with the Strange Deaths, and all the various other radar programs and so on, all of and the Marconi Company as well. And all of these facilities, all of these classified programs, all took place less than 11 miles from Rendlesham Forest. <laughs> so, in other words, you know, a lot of people think Rendlesham Forest is just this regular forest and something once happened there that was weird. Well, weirdness is sort of Rendlesham Forest's middle name, you know, going right back to the 30s. Now, there's the other side of it, which is more of a supernatural side, I guess, there are legends of sort of like phantom black dogs, as they're known in the UK, sort of ghostly uh, phantom black dogs roaming around the woods and large black panther type cats and ghostly figures. So everything about Rendlesham Forest is kind of weird. But for me, you know, the, the most important thing, I guess, in terms of the historical aspect of it all, is the fact that like it or not, the fact is that that entire area has been subjected to uh, top-secret programs for li- uh, not just for years, but for decades. And I think that's an important thing when you look at the location and you look at the history. You know, it does not become too difficult. It's not too much of a stretch to say, well, you know, if there are four or five top-secret experiments going on in that direct area from the 30s to the 80s, then why not run a similar program in the same area again in relation to, like, um, a UFO-themed experiment as well?
1: Right, right. And, um, you know, these, this idea that, you know, when you think of 11 miles here in America, that's not that far. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> th- there's, there's so much evidence that this is an area where you would do these types of of experiments, And one of the earlier ones you, uh, you cover in the book is um, Edgewood Arsenal. This was really interesting, its significance with Rendlesham Forest and this idea of ball lightning. You know, one mm-hmm. of these excuses we heard later on during Project Blue Book for many UFO sightings as well. So, yeah, would you mind kind of running us through this theory, Nick, of what ball lightning is, first of all? Because I still can't really wrap my head around it. And um, well, this idea yeah. of Edgewood Arsenal, yeah.
0: Well, um, essentially, ball lightning is a very rare form of lightning. And you know, if you see, you know, a, a lightning bolt, a thunderbolt, you know, and the the lightning coming down in like um like a jagged stick, you know, something like that in the skies. You know, everybody's seen that kind of lightning. Most people have never seen ball lightning. And essentially, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's when you have this rare situation where the lightning actually turns into like a plasma ball and it can sort of, you know, it'll, instead of like um, a bolt of lightning, you know, where you suddenly see for a second or two, uh, with ball lightning, it kind of moves slowly and this spherical shape and um it's uh, something you know if you ever see it which i never have (laughs) uh, but if you ever see it it really is like a a fantastic thing it's kind of just imagine like a globe just totally lit up and slowly moving in the skies and and giving off these sparks of light now in the um 1950s but particularly so more in the 1960s uh, research began to try and determine if if uh, ball lightning could actually be controlled and weaponized. And this all went along at the uh, Edgewood Arsenal in uh, Maryland. And this was a top secret program called Kugelblitz. Kugelblitz is actually German for ball lightning. That's where the name came from. And possibly one of the reasons why it was called that was because some of the scientists who worked on it 20 years earlier They'd worked on some of the so-called paperclip projects that brought the German Nazi um, scientists over at the end of the Second World War. So a lot of controversial and top-secret research was going on at the Edgewood Arsenal. And as I said, the, the plan was to try and see if ball lightning could be weaponized. That's to say, could it be directed um, using technology, including laser beams, to direct ball lightning at the enemy in other words you know you could do away with tanks and missiles you could literally use ball lightning and you know arguably create even more damage to the enemy and this particular program went on for years the kugelblitz one by that name began in 1965 and i've now got some files which show it was going through to the 1970s now the reason why i mention this in the book is because what the the guys out in Rendlesham forest saw in uh, in Rendlesham forest that night on the first night some of the material that was described in the skies by the guys in the woods eerily um, parallels what ball lightning is when you see it moving along as i said it's like a spherical Ball anywhere from the size of like um, a soccer ball up to like a beach ball, maybe sometimes a little bit larger, and it gives off these weird um, sparks and glowing particles. Now, what's intriguing is that that is exactly what Colonel Holt, who wrote the famous memo about the mm-hmm. about what happened on one of the, on the first two nights. In that particular memo, if you read and parallel what Holt had to say and the work being done at the Edgewood Arsenal, it sounds very much like that in December 1980, somebody had perfected this angle of replicating or controlling and weaponising ball lightning, and they were testing it out over Rendlesham Forest. Now, it gets more intriguing because the Edgewood Arsenal was also where uh, not a lot of early mind control, like, similar to the CIA's MI, uh, MI, MK Ultra program of the 1950s onward. So when you've got a facility that is working to create ball lightning, which in the sky kind of looks just like a UFO, and at the same place, they're also doing top secret research into mk ultra type investigations and experiments to manipulate the human mind etc etc then you realize you know and this was all going on at the same time that's an important thing to note as well and there's also a mind control mind manipulation component in um in the randlesham forest story as well so you put all that together Then you start to see a picture beginning in the mid-60s through to 1980 when it sounds very much like that by that time, by 1980, they'd sort of got the program running up and, you know, sort of seeing what the guys' responses were, you know, to see how they reacted to the idea, could these be UFOs, when actually it was a a combination of controlled and weaponized uh, ball lightning, mind alteration, and also with a third category, that of so- the use of sophisticated holograms.
1: Right, yeah, and we'll definitely get to that. I, d- I do want to move um, back to the idea of um, using the mind with this, Nick. Now, we go from, okay, fine, ball lightning in the sky, this could be what Halt You know, and the other officers witnessed, we've heard the audio tapes of them describing this. And you're right. It sounds, uh, no pun intended, strikingly similar to this ball lightning. (laughs) Um, But then you get to this next level of um, mind alteration. We do know a lot of the officers said they felt like they were either... um, you know, going in slow motion, or they felt like they were almost in this, like, weird, altered state. And some of the officers even said they felt like they were drugged. And we moved to a different place that I know you've done a lot of research into, and that's Porton Down. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was wondering, could you maybe we go from ball lightning to this next idea um, of now on the ground, where officers said this thing possibly landed and other things happened so what does Porton down have to do with all of this
0: well port and down is an interesting place in the southwest of england and it's a highly classified top secret facility in the southwest of the uk actually not too far as the crow flies from stonehenge and um, so uh it kind of got its own little historical area, so to speak. But over the years, certainly, it, although it sort of began uh, during the First World War, it really sort of became to, came to the fore, so to speak, in the Second World War and certainly throughout the early years of the Cold War. So we're sort of talking about um, the 50s and the 60s. Now... When the CIA started to do all their research into MKUltra and mind manipulation, uh, hallucinogenics, LSD, BZ, all these other mind-altering phenomena, The U.K., of course, has always had a good relationship with the U.S., and when Port and Down decided in the 50s to get more and more involved in the field of things like LSD and how it could be used on personnel to see how the sheer extent that that it could alter the mindset. Well, one of the things that they decided to do was to dose U.K. military personnel with LSD to see what the response was. Now, you know, people have said to me, well, there's no way, you know, that the British government or British military would do that. But they actually did, and the, the files, some of the files at least, have now been declassified And film footage was taken, which you can now actually see online. And basically what it was, they ran this experiment, scientists from Porton Down, and took them to an area of forest, interestingly enough, you know, another forest, um, not too far from Porton Down in this case the guys were asked if they would be willing to go along with an experiment but they didn't tell them anything about the experiment they just said you know we want we're going to give you something and we just want to see how you respond and Within minutes of being dosed with a, with a small amount of of lSD, they started to you know just couldn 't function properly. Some of them were climbing trees and some of them were just laughing. One guy in the in the footage looks like he's about to have a severe panic attack and there 's a Uh, a female nurse hanging on to his wrist and trying to reassure him. And this demonstrated, you know, that the British government was quite willing to test things like LSD on their troops. And some of the guys, you know, they were only sort of 20, 21, but for years later it sort of stayed with them. Now, the reason why I keep this in mind and why I put it in the book was because of the parallels between what went on in Mendelssohn Forest, we have some of the guys, as you said, you know, they weren't able to walk around properly. Some of them felt, you know, they were walking in like water, you know, it was just sort of hard for them. There was memory loss. There was sort of a lot of bright lights, you know, more visual than before, or they should be. And this was 1964. And if you Google LSD, British Army 1964, you'll find numerous websites about this, and one of them, it'll take you to YouTube, where you can actually watch portions of this experiment. But the important thing for me, you know, this 1964, that was only sort of 16 years before Rendlesham, British soldiers, well actually Marines, were exposed to mind-altering phenomena in a forest, and the military, the, 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 the superiors, so to speak, filmed it all. And there are rumors that the guys in, in um, Rendlesham Forest were also um, filmed right. by at least someone within the woods. We don't know who exactly did that. But the parallels between what happened in '64 and 1980 are so close that I had to put it in the book. But I wasn't the only one to sort of look into the port and down angle. Another, another one of them was Rear Admiral, um, Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Hill Norton, who was in the 1970s. He was one of the most powerful and influential um, people in the British military in the Ministry of Defence in the 1970s. And when he retired he actually developed a deep interest, not just in UFOs, but in Porton and Down and the Rendlesham uh, Connection. And he actually pushed the government to tell him what went on. And bear in mind, you know, he was retired by then, so he was kind of out of, the, out of the loop. You know, he was no longer in the know, so to speak. He was basically given the brush off, even though, you know, back in the 70s he held this senior position but he heard rumors through his contacts in government that yes a team had been secretly brought in to uh, Rendlesham Forest almost certainly the night before the first series of events so everything could be set, uh, set up you know late deep in the woods late at night nobody would be around he learned that as I said that in almost certainty that the team from uh, Porton down had got up into Rendlesham Forest the night before. Everything was prepared, along with the technology that was needed for the holograms and the the ball lightning. And that might sound like a lot of things going on, but, you know, dosing the guys, or at least some of them, wouldn't have been that difficult. You know, holograms can be projected quite easily. And, you know, and, and if your mind is already warped, that's going to make it even easier and with the um, the ball lightning as well if you add that to it you know we know for sure that that program had been going on from 1965 and certainly through the 1970s so in other words the guys who were running this program were already primed you know to know what to do
1: right yeah and you know the the word staged comes to mind a lot when it comes to this. A lot of the people felt like this was some sort of performance happening. Moving to the hologram thing, Nick, this, I don't know if this is just really good timing on your part, um, but within the last few weeks, I think it was, the Department of Defense and the Navy came forward and said they were looking into patents for plasma lasers to sort of You know, for air defense purposes, shoot a hologram out there, the enemy will fire at that. And meanwhile, our plane will go away. And we know that in the past, these things have been rumored as well, you know, shining holograms of God in the sky and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what uh, was this really (laughs) good timing on your part that your theory came forward the same time these articles started to come out? Or what are we dealing with here? This is insane.
0: Well, at the very least, it's like an incredibly weird coincidence, yeah. you know, or the ultimate synchronicity. Really. <laughs> but um, but actually, you know, the the story that you're talking about, when this surfaced just recently, I actually did my second interview when that story broke. And so, you know, talk about timing. You know, I guess we could sort of go down all sorts of conspiratorial pathways to explain that, or you could say it's a coincidence, you know, and I'm just... Or maybe it's somewhere in between, you know, but uh, but the important thing is, you know, it does demonstrate that research has gone on and is going on, you know, to sort of present imagery that isn't necessarily what it appears to be or you know, the other way around, you know. So, um, yeah, that was sort of a weird time, you know, weird timing in relation to um, the revelations. And, of course, you know, it was tied in with UFOs as well. Whether there's something more to this, you know, I, I, I don't know of anything else, you know, that what's going on behind the scenes. You know, all I've got is we got in the news stories, etc., etc. But, you know, when you look at a subject like UFOs, which is sort of filled with weirdness, It wouldn't surprise me if somewhere there's a connection, you know, between the story coming out at broadly the same time.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like you mentioned too, we've, we've attempted these things in the past, right? I mean, you came across some files and whatnot that stated, you know, we have tried to use this as a psychological warfare thing in the past, right?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, towards the end of the book, you know, I talk about a bunch of other cases which I think... Could have fallen into fall into the same category as Rendlesham, you know sort of manipulation of the mind and staged events and you know the more i 've dug into it, the more and more I think this has gone on and I think basically the way I look at it is that I do fully believe there is a genuine UFO phenomenon. I absolutely believe that now, whether it is extraterrestrial or multi dimensional or extra dimensional or just something we cannot fathom what they are at all, period. You know, I do believe there is a real UFO phenomenon. But what I think has happened is that agencies, scientific agencies, military agencies, intelligence agencies have realized that, yes, there is this weird phenomenon that we don't understand, but they can essentially, or they decided at some point, probably in the 50s, 40s, 50s, they decided to sort of hijack the real phenomenon so they could use it as a means to their you know to to their benefit, so to speak so we'll be talking about creating uFO events to test mind uh, altering technology, see how the human mind responds to this or to that, and then you know say then the, the military can have a sort of a way out by saying, oh, well, it was just UFOs. It was nothing to do with us. So I think, you know, there has been this intriguing angle of government agencies knowing there's a real phenomenon but also using it as a as a tool of, of experimentation on people as well.
1: Yeah, I think the government is very good at uh being opportunistic when uh when it fits their you know, their motives. And uh yeah, like you said, pushing that alien narrative even if that's not the source of uh, what's going on, um, has probably been used a lot in the past. And the whole hologram thing, it's its very fascinating to me, Nick, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I know some of my listeners have wondered as well. Holograms of the officers being possibly drugged and looking at these things in the forest is one thing. But what about catching these things on radar? We know the radar operators were tracking these objects into Rendlesham Forest long before it even arrived there. So I mean, is this just another whole part of this staged performance or um yeah, what are we dealing with when it comes to these things actually being tracked on radar?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, this is all a good point because, you know, what we're talking about is a case that you know, is sort of the the heart of ufology. So one way or another, you know, we need to sort of get to the heart of it. Now, in terms of the the whole hologram thing, The first person who was told this story was a guy named Ray Beauches. And in the 1980s, Ray ran the uh, Nebraska office of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. And he did did a lot of expertise, you know, very good expertise in the field of Rendlesham, contacted his senator and had a, a huge amount of correspondence, which Ray very generously let me use in the book. And, and to also present some of the documents themselves in the book. And um, it was after he'd sort of pushed and pushed with his senator and various other figures that in 1991, Ray was approached by what we would call, you know, sort of two departments of defense whistleblowers and they said that they wanted to share with him the truth of what happened at Rendlesham. Now, it's important to note that Ray wasn't the only one. He was the first one to hear this story. But as I point out in the in the book, you know, various researchers have, have followed this particular story. Now, I'll just read this. This is a quotation from Ray when I interviewed him about this angle that concerns the, the hologram. And he said... I found it interesting that they, that's the two whistleblowers, would mention Rendlesham at our meeting. They said there was a sense that this was maybe in some sense staged or that some of the senior people there were more concerned with the reaction of the men, how they responded to the situation rather than what was actually going on. And he said, basically, he said that even if it was a type of hologram, they said it could interact with the environment. The tree marks and the pod marks at the landing site were indications of that. But how can you have a projective thing like a hologram that also has material, physical capabilities? One of the people who looked into this as well... Was was Jenny Randall, and I'll just give you um, Jenny's words as well. She's a, for people who don't know, she's a long-term UFO researcher in the UK, going back to the nineteen seventies, and she. The way it was explained to her was this is a device, this is her words now, this is a device which manipulates the subatomic basis of matter at a quantum level and builds a bridge between mind and physical substance. If I understand it correctly, she added, this supposedly stimulated the mind into having vivid hallucinations, but at the same time, creating physical effects in the real world, which could take on a semblance of the appearance of the hallucinated images. So this sort of gets into you know, sort of really, um, you know, scientific concepts, you know, uh, when you start talking about quantum levels and things like this. But basically the idea, the theory that was given to all of these various people who looked into it and who were approached by Department of Defense people said that, yes, it was holographic, but it had this sort of connection with a physical reality. In other words, you could be sort of given an image and it would actually have some sense of physical to it as well. It wouldn't just be an energy, it would almost feel something that you could feel. Now, some people might say, well, that could be disinformation as a way to explain that, you know, to give an alternative theory and say, well, it really was aliens, you know. So you have to be very careful, and particularly you have to be very careful when you're dealing with whistleblowers because you don't know, you know, what their agenda really is. But what I would say you know is that the people in the dod who were willing to say something and in some cases you know the people I told never went public and i left them out the book because that they asked me to but there's no doubt that from the mid to late 80s and through the mid 90s a lot of people in ufology who were looking into rendlesham were being given this holographic story now of course you know the big question is well, is it true or is it created to hide the fact that aliens really did land, you know? And if it was just that, you know, I'd say, well, you know, it could be. But when you add the fact that we know there was important components, we know that what Colonel Holt reported seeing sounds eerily like what was being tested at, at Edgewood. You know, you put all those different aspects together, then I think it still sort of pushes it down the secret experiment angle.
1: Absolutely. There's another aspect to this, and I was really interested to hear about this in the book. You bring up a guy named Ralph Noyes. Now, I recently interviewed Kevin Day, the radar operator during the Tic Tac UFO event. And oh, yeah. back in, uh, I think it was 2009, he wrote a fictional book about the Tic Tac event, just to get it out there and like this is what i experienced and make of it what you will but in a fictional context and now i see this almost play out identical to something you found with this guy ralph in terms of something he wrote would you mind maybe running us through a little bit of this and what his book might represent
0: yeah sure well the guy you're talking about is ralph Noyes, which is n-o-y-e-s and he was someone who had a high um, level in the British air ministry as it was called back in the 50s and 60s and he continued on in the 70s when it was became known as the ministry of defense and when he he had a private interest in ufos and he was actually involved in a few investigations in the 50s and 60s of UFOs. But interestingly enough, he said he never saw anything that was you would call like an alien spacecraft. And he actually described how some British pilots had taken a gun camera film of sort of strange balls of light, which again kind of sounds like ball lightning and things like that. But in 1985, when he was now retired, Ralph Noyes wrote a novel called A Secret Property. And a secret property is a sort of a thinly veiled story of what happened at Rendlesham Forest. For example, Colonel Holt in, in, in Ralph Noyes' book is Colonel Hoyt. And the story is basically the same. A UFO comes down in an area of woodland, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in other words, you know, the story that Ralph Noyes told... Was almost sort of you know paralleling what happened at Reynoldsham, apart from one intriguing thing, and that is that the imagery that the the guys in the in his novel, you know, they see imagery of like UFOs and strange things in the woods, but it's sort of like. Um, a top secret program again sort of involving visions and hallucinations and again it's being done to determine you know the effects on the on the military personnel and when you put all of those pieces those segments together you know you've got a guy who actually did work on a ufo program for the british ministry of defence in the 50s and 60s and also he wrote this novel which almost identical to what happened in rendlesham apart from the fact the imagery you know the so called craft was provoked by visions, by imagery and by uh, like a superior technology, which the uh, the government is trying to get its grips around. And I think, and um, a lot of researchers think, af- with hindsight, after they read the, the, uh, the novel, is that Ralph Noyes knew exactly what happened at Rendlesham Forest, but because, you know, he was an old man, he was on a, a military pension, he didn't want to go too far, you know, and, and come out in the world of fact as a whistleblower. So he chose to tell what he actually knew in the form of a novel in, in terms of fiction. And I think, you know, as I po- said, uh, pointed out in the, in the book, in my book, I think, you know, if we ever do get the full story, I think we'll see that Ralph Noyes was one of the key players in knowing what really happened at uh, Rendlesham Forest.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, welcome to ufology, right, Nick? I mean, it's always fiction with a little truth somewhere in the middle. Well, in terms of let's go back to the witnesses for a moment. Now, I know you've spoken personally to John Burroughs, who a lot of our listeners know received medical treatment from this event from the VA recently. And then you have on the flip side, you have Jim Peniston, another person who claimed to have had a close encounter with the object itself. And they're They're on very uh different paths when it comes to what happened out there, but um have either of these guys reached out to you and given their opinions on what you've brought forward here?
0: well yeah Jim Peniston yeah Jim has yeah, spoken quite um you know wide open and you know said he he does not you know go with anything pretty much that I've said and and i, I mean I understand that because you know he was one of the guys in the in the woods in December nineteen eighty. You know, December 1980, I was still a kid at school. <laughs> well, I wasn't even college, you know, or university. Right. I was still at school, the, the UK equivalent of high school. And so I wasn't there at the time. I've been there many times since. But, I mean, that's not the same as being there in December 1980. And so, you know, when the what I've said in the book about John Burroughs, Jim Penniston, all the other guys, I don't believe any of them at all have lied, I don't believe any of them have exaggerated, I don't believe any of them have a a sinister agenda or anything like that at all. But what I do think is that if you're placed in a situation where you're faced with incredible technology which looks out of this world but actually isn't, such as, for example, uh, weaponized and controllable lightning you've got mind-altering technology, you've got sophisticated holograms. When you put all that together, what you see is what you remember, and what you remember is what you see. But when you put all of those other categories into it, what I take the view is that can you actually rely on your own imagery? Can you rely on your own memories when you were potentially... Messed around with. I mean, for example, with Jim, I mean, by his own admission, you know, that the military used sodium pentothal on him, you know, the so called truth drug. And, you know, this angle of drugs goes through the whole story, you know, whether it's like sodium pentothal, you know, to try and find out, for example, Peniston recalled in his mind. And um, then you've got the.
1: It's that time of the year PlushCare.com slash weight weightloss.
0: Porton Down connection. You've got the fact that Porton has a, had a connection back in the Cold War with Porton Down. That's the way I look at it. I think all the guys are completely honest. They reported it as they saw it. But when you're dealing with all this mind-altering phenomena and, you know, highly advanced technology, can you actually fully rely on your own memories, you know.
1: Right, yeah, and, um, well, you mentioned the word honesty, Nick, and whether you like him or not, he's forever attached to this event, and that's Larry Warren. Do you think any of your alternate theories make any of what he has said more reasonable or possible, or do you dismiss this guy outright like a lot of people have? Yeah, where does he play into this entire alternate explanation thing? (laughs) What's up, guys? Ryan here, and I'm just dropping in to tell you about a new podcast I'm listening to. It's called Crashed in Roswell, Survivors in a Misunderstood City. The podcast centers on Kyle Bullock, a lifelong local of the infamous Roswell, New Mexico. Kyle takes us on an investigative journalist's journey to uncover secrets from his family history and ties to the events of the Roswell UFO crash of 1947. What starts out as a show about family and small-town America quickly turns into something much more mysterious and wild. When Kyle meets John, an old friend of his grandfather's, and a man with a secretive past. The show also explores the effects the UFO crash has had on the small community over the past 70-plus years, and how it's changed the very culture of Roswell forever. Forever. If you're interested in UFOs, conspiracies, or want to know what Roswell is really about, you've got to listen to this show. The first season is currently underway, and new episodes release every Thursday. Crashed in Roswell is streaming now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or you can learn more and stream over at crashedinroswell.com.
0: Uh, should say is that, you know, I've known Larry since 1997 and this was when they with the book that he wrote with Peter Robbins left at Eastgate, that uh, book came out in the summer of 1997 Peter and Larry's publisher had essentially sent them on like um, a tour to promote the book that's what you have to do, you know and they came over to the UK and I spent probably about I think, it, I'm I'm guessing now, but I think it was, this, bear in mind this was 23 years ago, uh, but I think I spent maybe about 13 or 14 days with them, I think, travelling up and down the UK and while they gave their lectures, etc., etc. You know, it stayed like that. You know, Larry became one of the key figures in the case, and, you know, that did not change until just a couple of years ago When there's a lot of controversy put out there about Larry and Peter, eventually demanded that the book be pulled. You know, because he he didn't have any sense of you know the content of the book. You know, was reliable. That's how he saw it. You know. So in that sense, you know, you've got people who who believe Larry's story, you have people who don't believe Larry's story, and then there's this sort of uh, grey area in between. And I call it a a grey area because one of the interesting things is that although over the years Colonel Holt, Charles Holt, didn't really have, you know, too much time for Larry, he very often would sort of say that even though, you know, he, he didn't sort of go with Larry's approach, Holt, you know, did say on a number of occasions that he felt that larry whatever the truth was had been he had his mind in some way meddled with and that was almost sort of the you know the exact words well the reason why i mention this is because early last year i spoke at a conference down in edinburgh texas it's called the out of the world conference it's on every year and not only was i one of the speakers down there but charles holt was as well and we had a good time you know he's a nice guy laid back and you know chatty and funny and we got talking about various aspects of Randall because we were there from like the Friday or Thursday possibly right through to the Monday. So we were, we were all there sort of hanging out together for about four days. And I asked him, you know, what he thought about the growing controversy surrounding uh, Larry. And he he basically said the same thing. He said that, you know, uh, it's, yeah, it's really controversial, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But he did say to me then, again, you know, that um, he felt that in some way, regardless of what people thought of, you know, his views and what Larry had said, he still felt that Larry had had his mind messed with. So I find that interesting that, you know, you've got a lot of people in ufology who don't like Larry. And yet, just a year ago when I spoke to, or just a bit more than a year ago, when I met Holt for the first time down in Edinburgh, Texas, he was still saying that, well, you know, there is still something, I think, that was sort of where Larry was played with. So, Mm. you know, and and Holt was one of the guys in the woods, you know, so um, I think the whole story is sort of has not been unraveled you know i think there's still way more you know in relation to to larry's story
1: right and you know a lot of the uh i would say discounting of larry's story was always he was the only one to say that he saw alien beings in the forest and i mean you look at the cover of your book and boom there it is right there and you know it is possible that either hallucinogens or uh holograms or something had to do with that and you know, Larry did see what he thinks he saw. So, I mean, yeah, I, he is a very contentious well, person when it comes to this. Yeah, It would make I think sense.
0: The, I think the big problem with, not with Larry's story, but the way it's been approached by ufology, it's very much black and white. You've got people who believe him and people who disbelieve him. But then you've got this hazy thing where even Colonel Holt said he felt... Something had been done to Larry. So for me, we need to be focusing more on that middle ground, you know, this hazy, weird middle ground, rather than just saying, I think this is garbage, and somebody says, no, he's a good guy. You know, it's, um, I think the, the answers to Larry and his involvement in Rendlesham are in that hazy, grey area that holds kind of vaguely touched on, you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, I would have to agree. It's always somewhere in between. And I mean, someone who really looked at that, Nick, was uh, Nick Pope, you know, former UFO desk person for the MOD. He brought something interesting to the public not too long ago, and that was Project Condine. You know, basically the UK equivalent of, I guess, sort of like Tip here in the United States, where the British Defense Intelligence Agency, you know, for... 97 to 2000, they looked into UFO reports. And if I'm not mistaken, I think they went back to Rendlesham at one point in Project Condine. So what do you think this, this your alternate theories, does this play into anything that Nick Pope has brought forward about the case? Or have you spoken to him about what he feels um, after doing all this research into Rendlesham? Where does he lay when it comes to these theories he brought forward?
0: Well, I mean, the whole Condine thing is important. This was um, like a top-secret UFO program that began in the late 1990s, and um, it was essentially looking at the UFO phenomenon, and to a significant degree, again, to see how it could be um, utilized you know, in the, in the form of a weapon you know, and, and a lot of it revolved around like plasmas and ball lightning and things like this. It was actually, although it was called Project Condine, the official title was Unidentified Aerial Phenomena in the UK Air Defence Region. You know, it was like a, a typical kind of, you know, government program title. <laughs> and I think sometimes that's done, you know, because it's such a weird and strange title that it, gets overlooked. They can sort of get away with not putting the word UFO in the in the document. You know, it keeps it away from the media and people like me and you. But um, the program itself was run by a guy named Ron Haddow. He spent a lot of his life in the Royal Air Force. He worked on radar, guided weapons, electronic warfare and um all sorts of different things and uh, you you know he was somebody who was really in the prime place to um to look into this now one of the um angles of these plasmas that condyne the condyne project looked into was to see how, you know, it could actually be affected, you know, the human mind could be affected by some of these plasmas that the MOD was really interested in. Now, I'll just tell you, um, this is a quote from Nick Pope in relation to the Condine Report. And Nick said, and I'm quoting him directly here, one of the areas that will be most contentious relates to what the report refers to as plasma-related fields. Electronically charged atmospheric plasmas are credited with having given rise to some of the reports of vast triangular shaped craft. While the interaction of such plasma fields with the temporal lobes in the brain is cited as another reason, now, this is where it gets important another reason why people might feel they were having a strange experience. So, You know, even Nick was talking about strange experiences and plasmas when um, the Condine report came out. You know, those were his exact words, you know. So I think Condine was sort of like, an offshoot of whatever it was that happened in, in 1980 that the, maybe the MOD, you know, didn't fully get a hold on it properly in the early eighties and brought it back again in the nineties and looking at plasmas and, and like Nick Polk himself said, you know, as to, um, you know, it can cause people to, have a bizarre experience, mm-hmm. uh, but it may not have been a real experience. So, so even Nick, you know, didn't deny it. You know, he actually said that himself.
1: Right, right. And I think, you know, the important thing to remember, too, is, uh, you know, while Condine might have looked back at Rendlesham, all the files on this case were actually never found. When people tried to get, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests filed on this case, they just mysteriously disappeared. So, I mean, you've got that whole angle to it all as well.
0: Yeah, you're right. And I mean, that issue of of missing files runs through the story. I mean, it's not just in relation to those missing files. Hill Norton, Admiral, Admiral Hill Norton, who I mentioned earlier, you know, he was someone who pushed for the Porton Down files. Now, what's interesting, the government never actually said there was no connection between what happened at Randlesham and Porton and Down. What they actually said was that we went looking and we couldn't find the files. That's what the government said. So, in other words, when the government says we went looking but we didn't find the files, doesn't mean they actually didn't exist. You know, that government agencies are very careful to word things like that in case it comes back to to hit them. Right. And another example, just about five miles from Rendlesham Forest, there's a prison called Hollersley Bay. And it's for young offenders, you know, like kids who've stolen a car or something like that. And there were rumors that when they were releasing these hallucinogenics into the woods, there was some concern that if the weather changed, the, the wind changed, the aerosol-based hallucinogenics could actually head towards, through the forest, and head towards Hollisley Bay Prison. And there were rumors that the, um, the prison for all these young kids would be affected, if you like. And so... There was this plan, if it was needed, to evacuate the prison. And Hill Norton actually heard through some of his sources about that story, this prison angle and the evacuations. And again, um, the government didn't deny this happened. What they said was they couldn't find the prison governor's um, journal from that particular period. Hmm. So again, he gave them sort of an out. But again, it demonstrates... this interesting angle of Rendlesham, namely documentation going missing, you know, and uh, we see that throughout the entire story.
1: Right. Plausible deniability all the way. (laughs) Um, That's great, Nick. Well, I'm going to move to a few listener questions here with you. Michael on Facebook asks, given your research relating to the potential non-extraterrestrial cause of Roswell and Rendlesham, Two cases you've covered. Uh, Would you say that the government or military benefit from UFO mythology overall to keep secrets? And if so, in your opinion, can disclosure from the government actually ever be trusted?
0: Well, that's actually a very good question, because in my terms, at least, you know, when you look at Randall June, and I also wrote a book on Roswell, both of which I suggested were classified military programs, but which were sort of hidden under the umbrella of a UFO angle. But, yeah, I mean, that, that's a perfect question because we are in a situation, I think, where we cannot trust which are the real UFO cases and which ones are the fabricated ones for things like psychological warfare and um, counterintelligence and disinformation programs. You know, the more and more our technologies develop the more and more difficult it becomes to differentiate between a real UFO phenomenon and one that isn't real. And I think, you know, in relation to the question as well, this issue of disclosure, well, that's a very good point. Most people think either disclosure's coming or it's not coming, but in relation to the question, I mean, that's a very important point, the idea that can we actually trust disclosure if and when it comes? Or is disclosure going to be something where, you know, well, we've seen UFOs in the skies and we, we think they're dangerous, et cetera, et cetera, and could easily be sort of used as a means to take away, you know, more privacy and et cetera, et cetera. In other words yes, UFOs are a threat. And so, you know, we need to do this and we need to do that to to control you even more. You know, I think that that is one of the disturbing aspects is that um, the UFO subject could be used as a means to essentially bit by bit, you know, sort of affect people's, um, you know, everyday liberty, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And we would not know, you know, for sure, if it was a real UFO event that inspired this to happen, you know, in- initiate these new laws, or was it, you know, something that was fabricated versus, or was it aliens? And in today's world, when looking at things like Rendlesham, I honestly cannot say for sure in some of these high-profile cases that we all know about, I cannot say for sure if they are real. Uh, well, they're all, they're real in one sense regardless, but I mean, are they UFO events or are they the fabricated UFO events and that's where it kind of gets into a disturbing realm of manipulation and um, Mm -hmm. you know sort of having an effect on the population as well.
1: Right and then I mean you look at the overall picture if any of the explanations you brought forward are true and this was some sort of top secret experiment to what ends and who's at the top kind of pulling the strings downward and downward when it comes to this and why. So I think you're right. I think it is dark and disturbing. I mean, you look at things like the Patriot Act here in America or, uh, conspiracy theorists thinking that this global crisis we're dealing with is a way to finally microchip everybody you know you have these really far out there conspiracy theories about our government using crisis or events as an opportunity to get what they want out of it so um is this the same when it comes to certain ufo events we'll we'll probably never know
0: well we we won't know unless you know somebody comes forward with hard evidence and i mean regardless of what happened at Roswell or the Cashlandrum case, which is also a controversial one and um, Rendlesham as well, unless we get sort of 100% hard, solid evidence as to what happened. I mean, you're always going to have people on different sides of the coin, so to speak, either what they believe happened at Rendlesham or what they happen, you know, what they believe happened at, at Roswell and so on. So, in that sense, you know it, it is getting more and more difficult, and I mean the fact is we are being sort of watched more and more. I mean this whole issue, you know sort of people being microchipped there's one reason why I don't think we will ever be microchipped, and that's because we are all we're already microchipped it's called an iPhone
1: you know? <laughs> good point
0: you know you don't need to have a little device implanted under your skin because you've actually got this small uh, device which happens to be in your pocket and you know for example that phone may contain all your medical information you know when you've got your next checkup or whatever it's got information on for example when you're going to go for you know your ladies have your oil change change in the card or whatever you know and and just about anything like that. All of that data, all that information, you know, the the holiday, the vacation to the Bahamas that you've just you just arranged, you know, all that is on that phone. So I think you I could have seen the days when we there could have been somebody might have made an argument for you know, for microchips, but as I said, we don't think about the fact that we actually do have the equivalent. It's not literally, you know, a microchip, but it's the equivalent of it. And we, most people, can't put the thing down. So, you know, and I mean, also there's the fact that I mean, it's easy just to track where you're going as well. You know, when you've got your your phone with you, so um, that really is the perfect surveillance device
1: you know yeah and i think it's important too. um let's if we go back to something like a tip this aerial threat I- identification program with the uh department of defense luis elizondo the former head of the program has even said you know we weren't we could care less if these ufos were aliens we were there to monitor if it was a potential threat to our skies and our national security so i mean Right there, you've got a very clear stance that even the program investigating UFOs here in America, the secret program, didn't care where they came from. Was it a threat? And I think that's kind of the angle that the this certain group is taking now in terms of looking at this phenomenon. You know, is this going to be a threat to us? How can we make our military stronger to fight back if we ever have to? Um, so, yeah, it, you're right. There's so much politics and economics and beliefs that go into this quote-unquote ufo phenomenon and uh it's hard to tell up from down left from right but i mean if we don't ask new questions like you have we're just going to be stuck in the same rut like we have for 70 something years
0: well you're right i mean the way i look at it is that you know if i'm looking into a case like a ufo case and i realize well hang on a me, there's something not right here and i start You know going down a different path and find out this and find out that you know i mean i won't name names but there are certain well-known figures in ufology who will not rock the boat because they're just worried they won't get booked for the next conference you know for the next lecture etc etc frankly i couldn't care less you know um I tell it as I see it. And if people like what I do and agree, that's great. And if people don't agree with me, well, I ain't going to lose no sleep over it. You know, It's um, that's how it goes. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there are too many people in ufology who, are, who just kiss the ass of the person who they think is going to get them up the UFO ladder, so to speak. And I don't really have no time for that at all, which is why... I'm probably the first one to have written a book about Rendlesham saying that aliens didn't land, you know. <laughs> I can think of more of than a few who would not... I mean, I'm not just sort of blowing my own trumpet, so to speak, but I can tell you for sure that there's certain people in ufology who would never write a an anti-Rendlesham case in terms of, you know, aliens versus experiments because they'd be just too fearful of what the... You know, the outcome would be for their UFO career, but I mean, that's all they, that's the only thing they've got to deal with and worry about. I mean, it's pretty pathetic, really. I mean, you should go for the answers, regardless of what the answers are, just look for the answers.
1: Yeah, there is a a huge difference between belief and proof for fact. And I think you're right. Belief often blinds a lot of people when it comes to this stuff, especially when you th- bring something forward like you have here. Um, well, this one is not so much a question, but a, a fact, um, which we you might find interesting. Uh, the Orphaness Lighthouse, um, that many said was the explanation for what Halt was seeing, um, is actually being scheduled for demolition after 220 years yeah. of functioning. <laughs> Isn't that crazy?
0: Yeah, I saw that. And um, I mean, for the record, I don't think, you know, the... Um Maybe one or two people at some point maybe saw, you know, the light from the from the lighthouse and saw something and thought it might have been, you know, there, somehow connected. But I think, you know, that's a, if that happened, it would be sort of like a minute part of the entire story, even, you know, beyond minute. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole area is sort of filled with historical... And government places, I mean, you've got Orford Ness, you know, the lighthouse, you know, sort of going to be raised to the ground. Um, You've got Hollisley Bay prison that was going to be evacuated. You've got Cobra Mist, the Tizard Committee, the Shingle Street story, you know, where the German troops were all set on fire on the beach when they tried to invade. The whole area is just weird and saturated in classified programs and for me I cannot extract that from the UFO story you know it's Rendlesham forest is not your average place you know that's the in a concise terms that's the best way I can describe it
1: yeah I would have to agree with you um well in terms of Rendlesham nick and Roswell two cases that you uh have clearly brought some controversial Uh, theories to, are there any other UFO cases that you'd like to really, you know, shake up and bring forth some new stuff? Anything you're working on in terms of these alternate explanations?
0: Where would you like me to
1: start? Oh no, (laughs) that's the perfect answer.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, um, another one, which is probably going to piss off a a few other people, but again it, it sort of smacks of reality is the um, Charles Hickson-Calvin Parker alien abduction of 1973. I mean, that case, that particular case, um, is one of the primary alien abduction cases, not just of the 1970s, but of throughout alien abduction history itself. And the story is that um, the two men were on the edge of the Mississippi River Fishing late at night, you know, on a Saturday night, just hanging out, having a good time. And they saw this strange light coming towards them. Things started to go weird. They were taken on board a craft. And then it was followed by some sort of um, classic abduction. Interestingly enough, they were taken to a nearby military base after and questioned all sorts of questions, you know, what did you see, et etc. Et it was almost as if the, the people who were the, going to interview them were primed and, and ready. Now, what's particularly intriguing is that um, Hickson and Parker, uh, when they had experienced, a lot of people don't know this, but where they were abducted from, and whoever they were abducted by, was not too far from a place called Horn Island. And Horn Island in the 1950s was a place where a lot of the early hallucinogenic mind altering technology was tested just down on Horn Island, not too far from where the two men were abducted. Now, what's Mm. particularly intriguing is that the work on Horn Island was cancelled for one particular reason, and that was because some of the experiments involved aerosol-based hallucinogenics, and... They couldn't guarantee that the winds wouldn't blow in the wrong direction and head towards civilization so to speak, pop, you know, populated areas. That sounds almost identical to what happened in Rendlesham Forest with the prison, the youngsters' prison, Hollersley Bay, you know, with uh, the idea of evacuating the place because of the wind blowing the hallucinogens. So, in other words there are aspects of the Hicks and Parker story which is very similar to certain portions of Rendlesham as well.
1: Wow. I feel like only you would be able to make a connection between Pascagoula and the Rendlesham Forest <laughs> incident, Nick. That's amazing. Wow.
0: Well, actually, there's um, to, to give a plug to another book, the, book, the guy who... Who dug all this out about Parker and Hickson and the hallucinogenics and um, Horn Island was a guy named, or st- I shouldn't say he was, he still is, <laughs> a guy named Hank Albarelli, And he wrote a book called A Terrible Mistake. And it's all about the death of a guy named Frank Olson, who was one of the early MK Ultra guys. And um, he died of very um, controversial circumstances. He was either pushed or drone or jumped out of a hotel window and there's still a lot of controversy about it now but alberelli's book is a really good book a terrible mistake and it talks about the uh, the hicks and parker case and you know and it's so close to horn island where all this sort of mind-altering technology was being used and also i mean if we've got time um The Villas-Boas case of um, 1957, Antonio Villas-Boas claimed that he'd been taken on board a UFO and uh, had sex with this sort of hot-looking uber space babe, you know, (laughs) And, um, and I mean, it all sounds really cool, you know, I mean, most people wouldn't sort of say no, but the story itself is intriguing because of the time frame and what... Villasboas Boas actually said versus what so many people in ufology have said. Now, people. Who, uh, one of the people who spoke about this was a guy named Ned, Bosco Nedelkovich, and he was someone who was connected to the U.S. intelligence community. And before his death, Nedelkovich said that um, the Villasboas Boas case was kind of like an MKUltra program, and he claimed that the UFO that supposedly took Vilas Boas on board was actually a helicopter. Now some people might laugh at that, but I mean, if you actually read Vilas Boas' very own words, in his own words when he was interviewed, he said that the craft that he was taking on board was kind of like an elongated type of craft. And he said that on top of it was something spinning at high speed and something was going, making like a whoop, whoop, whoop kind of noise, mm-hmm. yeah. which sounds to me just like a helicopter. Now, on top of that, and this is where it gets really interesting, is that a number of documents have now surfaced, and I mentioned one of those in the book, have surfaced showing that in the mid-1950s, that the CIA hired prostitutes to dose um, people, you know, in like a hotel room, and it'd be like with, um, you know, a, a mirror where you could see both sides, and they would use, for example, LSD um, on people and see the responses to the LSD. And so the theory is that Willis Boas was taken on board a helicopter, exposed to extremely quick fast-working, hallucinogenics, and and he may well have even had sex with the woman, you know, if she was a hawker. And when you read, it sounds bizarre, but when you read the story, it all comes together, and it sounds very much like a staged early, and a very, very early staged alien abduction event that was played out to present to the UFO community, if you like, one of the very earliest alien abductions, but which may not actually have been anything of the sort at all. It could have been a very strange, very alternative kind of staged event.
1: Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. You know, it it just reminds me, I always go back to my theater roots, and who said it better than Shakespeare? All the world is a stage.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I I think either way, um, Phyllis Bowes, I don't think he really cared whether it was a... An alien woman or a a hooker, you know. Yeah, who
1: cares? He was
0: just just happy to have some fun, you know.
1: (laughs) That's so true. At that point, hey, who can argue? Yeah, let's be honest. But one other
0: thing, I mean, one important thing, and I talk about this in the book as well, which Mm -hmm. is highly controversial, is that John Fuller, who wrote the first um, Alien Reduction book, on the Betty and Barney Hill case, The Interrupted Journey, when that book came out, a lot of people didn't realize that John Fuller, who wrote the first alien abduction book, was heavily involved with some of the people who worked in the CIA's MKUltra program. He was friends with them and even had insiders who were willing to sort of share with him, you know, what was going on with MKUltra and what the status of sort of research into that field was. And some people think that he may actually even have been brought into the program to reinforce this, the alien abduction angle to try to try and create that the lore, if you like, and the legend of alien abductions, and, and kickstart off the whole abduction phenomenon, but doing it as kind of like um, as like a, as a mind-altering. Project, if you like.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just keep tracing back further and further and connecting these dots, and yeah, it it makes perfect sense, you know, creating a mythology and uh, using it to.
0: (laughs) But the big problem is, and this isn't, you know, a slur on people in ufology, but the fact is, not many people in ufology want to hear that.
1: Yeah, they want to
0: hear aliens. That's why this works so brilliantly, because people do want to hear about UFOs, and they don't want to hear about Nick talking about holograms, <laughs>
1: you know.
0: I mean, even, I mean, you know, I'll be brutally honest, but I know people don't want the truth to be what it is in my book. They want it to be extraterrestrial, but I mean, I can only present it as it is, you know, um, but that's one of the most brilliant things about it, you know. The reason why these programs work is because so many people, do, as I said, do want that to be the answer they want the alien angles they don't want to know that um roswell was a secret military experiment you know or one Mm -hmm. of the most famous alien abduction writers you know was hooked into mk ultra they don't want that and and that's what you're up against so um that's ufology
1: that's (laughs) ufology and hey man it's not an easy road to take so i respect you for for doing that. I think the field needs that desperately when it comes to this topic. The power of belief outweighs everything for some of these people. And I think without asking these questions, we're not going to get anywhere. And I know there's a lot of people who told me like, you shouldn't be doing that interview. He like, he's just spreading more disinformation. But I argue to those listening to this and who told me not to do this interview. I think the disinformation comes from blind faith and belief in something that we have absolutely no definitive proof of. So, yeah, for anyone who does go with the alien theory on Rendlesham or any of these other things you've brought up, that's fine. That's perfectly fine, but then you got to think to yourself, maybe that's what they wanted all along. Well,
0: you know, I mean, I would I mean, it might sound ironic, but I mean, I would love it if Rendlesham really was extraterrestrial because okay, it might show that I was wrong, but it would also show that we had we really have had alien visitations. so you know, even for me, you know, I wish some of these cases were extraterrestrial. But you know, when you look further and further into them, I just saw I, I begin to see sort of red flags and red lights, you know, coming here and, and threads and leads here between different programs and military programs. And, and they all, you know, they're all tied around Rendlesham Forest. And, um, and so for me, whatever the answer is, I mean, frankly, you know, I don't really care what ufology thinks about me. Like I said, I've got thick skin. I don't lose sleep about this. And if somebody wants a good argument and a fight, well, that's, cool, that's fine by me, you know, I don't care. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But in saying that, I think yeah, there is way too much belief in ufology. And really, we should just be looking for evidence, not for belief. I mean, you know, not to, you know, sort of besmirch people who have a religious faith, but I mean, a lot of religion is based on belief. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't care, I don't mind if people, you know, base their... You know their systems of faith on belief, but I just wish instead of having belief, we could ha- we could have evidence. And there is, you know, if you look at in the dictionary, you know, the description of belief versus evidence, they're two different things. You know.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. Well, I mean, Nick, in terms of. Uh of moving forward with all of this. Uh, You have a really good afterword in the book, which I don't want to give away here. I think people should read it about your continued efforts and work into looking at Rendlesham. But what comes next? I know you're always working on something. So is there anything you can share with us on what we can expect next from you?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I've got one of my other big interests is cryptozoology, which is the study of unknown animals like Bigfoots, lake monsters... Chupacabra, things like that. And I've got a book coming out in August called Monsters of the Deep. And it's all to do with like lake monsters like Loch Ness Monster, things like that, sea serpents, giant squid, things like the kraken and how the, the legends and, and the myths of the kraken developed. And so anything that's sort of monstrous and living deep in the waters, that's what the new book will be out be about, and then in october i 've got another one called it 's just called the Martians and it 's sort of like a full length, very lengthy book on the the whole controversy surrounding was there at some point advanced life on Mars. and looks and the book looks at you know the old legends and stories and some of these strange photographs that NASA itself even have taken you know of what looked kind of like the remnants and the um, You know, sort of the crumbling uh, remnants of ancient cities and buildings on Mars. So it looks at the the idea that possibly thousands of years ago, maybe hundreds of thousands of years ago, there could have been some sort of ancient race on the on Mars itself. So that one will be out in October. So it's uh, Monsters of the Deep in August, and then the Martians. In
1: October hey I love it man there's two things we we explore on this planet it's uh what's below us and what's above us and you're covering both <laughs> angles so I I absolutely love that before we go Nick where can we find the book and uh, everything else you're up to
0: um, well, the book's available um, from Amazon, and you can get it in paperback and Kindle. And uh, people can reach me at my blog, which is called World of Whatever. If you just um, look for Nick Redfern, World of Whatever, you'll find me. Um, you can reach me at Twitter, Nick Redfern UFO. And you can find me at Facebook. Just There's a few Nick, uh, red ferns, but just sort of scroll down. You'll see me. And always happy to chat with people. I'm not one of these these authors who don't want to talk, you know. Don't talk to me. I'm an author. You know what I mean? Right. I, don't, I don't have any time for that. So people or I want to share information or, you know, if they've seen something and they want some advice or some help, you know, I'm always happy to uh, take the time and, you know, chat with them. So.
1: Awesome. Well, once again, the book is The Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy and this has been Nick Redfern. Nick, thank you so much for joining me again on Somewhere in the Skies.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, mate.
1: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.